Welcome to the Tim Graham Show. The Tim Graham Show. This is Sports Radio 1270. Just not hitting the hole. The fan. I know I'm going to get pimped. They're going to pimp me. Yeah, huh? I love sausage. Thank you, Tim. Shocking. Dizzying. How did this happen? When I bring the lumber, it's all about the hole. Tim Graham Show. I diddled uh, some pole. Uh, over the weekend. Right. Not me so honia. I did have an accident with a menorah. Here we go. On Twitter at 1270. Wet ball. Taking your calls at 270-1270. What's up, baby? How you doing? Here we go. The Tim Graham Show. When's the last time you read the New Testament, huh? I'm trying to put my junk back in place. You're one of the guys I'm following on Twitter, you know. Uh-oh. I like this guy, uh, Tim Graham. Welcome to the October 30th, 2019 Year of Our Lord edition of the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic. He covers the bills. Jonah Bronstein of the Bronstein... I usually have something loaded up, ready to go. Professor Bronstein. Professor Bronstein. Have you picked up any new clients for your prof- professorial duties? No, I, I might need to talk to CTBK about merging and acquiring other classes if they can get them for me. As of, engagements. As of right now, Matt, uh, Jonah Bronstein uh, teaching at Madai. Sports journalism. As of now, at last I checked. Bobby Rosati. Diddle in the knobs. And, look, here's the thing. Here's how talented Bobby Rosati is. We listen to that same bump. I mean, there are new wrinkles. He's constantly adding, subtracting, putting in different music, different sounds. Like a live Grateful Dead show. But it's (laughs) mostly the same every week, and it still makes us laugh. Mike Rodak asking when the last time anybody's read the New Testament. Jonah Bronstein saying that he once had a menorah accident. <laughs> a menorah. Just uh, a montage of greats. Gronk talking about putting his junk back. Yes. Unbelievable. Great stuff, Bobby, as always. Bobby's going to be a busy boy today because we have a lot of guests. We're going to have Lee Smith on the show. We're going to talk about, uh, well, well, who, who knows what we're going to talk about? That's the joy of Lee Smith. We're going to have Gene Kirshner on. Gene Kirshner is going to talk to us about this weekend, the 2019 Breeders' Cup World Championships happening Friday and Saturday at Santa Anita. And Gene Kirshner, you will know his name from the Buffalo News. He is their horse racing expert. You also know his name from CTBK. He is the K of Shampoo Travis Besaw and Kirshner, Gene Kirshner. And this isn't going to be some soft interview about, hey, gee, Gene, why don't you just tell us about everything that's going great in horse racing these days? Santa Anita has been the site of some pretty dark developments this season and some controversy, I think, behind the scenes in the business aspect of things. The Stronic Group which is from just a little bit north of Toronto, Canadian family. The Stronic Group owns Santa Anita, where 36 horses have died this year. And Craig Fravel, who is the Breeders' Cup CEO, and has been asked, hey, gee, 
Mr. Fravel, maybe you should put a pause on the Breeders' Cup this year or think about moving it away from Santa Anita with all the problems that have been happening there at the track. Well, Craig Fravel said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. I think everything's fine. Craig Fravel, after the Breeders' Cup, is going to be uh, the CEO of Racing Operations for the Stronach Group, which owns Santa Anita and overseeing all this stuff. Convenient. So we're going to talk about the race. I mean, it still is the Super Bowl of horse racing. People always like to point to the Triple Crown races. But this is the end of the season for horse racing. It is tantamount to your World Series. It's for any horse three years and older. Uh, you throw them in there, and it's the best horses on the planet. And uh, But we're going to talk to Gene about the whole thing, the good and the bad of what's, uh, of what's going on in the sport. Uh, we're also going to talk to Mark Summer of the Buffalo News. We're going to talk to Mark about the World Series, and we're having Mark in studio uh, to talk about the World Series because uh, over the summer, and it's long overdue, we wanted to have him in over the summer. We just couldn't make it happen. He wrote a book about Cleveland Indians icon Rocky Colavito, and uh, we'll talk about that book, the process, and uh, the joy of baseball. But what a game last night, game six. Uh, it was full of anything you'd want to see controversy i think the right team won thankfully i think we would not be talking about it being such a great game if the astros won it with what happened on the uh runner interference call we're going to get into that with mark we'll talk about it all amongst ourselves but oh and uh, joel stanishevsky on the line from vegas of course to talk about the bills and washington this weekend the bills opened up as a 10 and a half point favorite i'm not sure where it stands now it was 10 yesterday uh, we'll get into that with Joel uh, later in the show. But what I wanted to mention here at the top, Sean McDermott had an interesting thing to say today in which he took a, I don't even want to say it was thinly veiled. It was out there. It was an explicit shot at previous regimes with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, and uh, Sean McDermott talking today about what happened at the trade deadline, which was nothing. And so he had this to say uh, about why the Bills didn't do anything. Brandon and I, you know, had some conversations um, really over the last couple of weeks, and I know he, he and his staff do a good job looking into things. Um, at the end of the day, um, I think you guys know we're going to do things that are in the best interest of this, of this organization, short and long term, and, and I think... Um, at the end of the day, we didn't find something that was that would be responsible for us to do. I know a lot of teams go out there and just do things, and, and we're trying to we're trying to do this thing the right way here. And so, um, you know, we want to be responsible with that as well. It says, uh, Vic, that I'm confident that we are confident in the guys that we have, uh, and we expect them to play well. And then, um, again, it, it also to me, just what I shared also is, um, if it's if there's not a responsible move for us to make. Um, we're not going to make it, and um, that's that's what we're here to do. That's um, there's been way too many years of irresponsible decision making. Let's just put it that way. Let's just put it that way. Matt Fairburn, you were there at the news conference. What did you make of it? You're right. It was not veiled. That was a direct shot, uh, and I don't think there was too much. Um, you know, gray area to what he said. It was, it seemed to me 
to be, you know, talking about what they inherited, which they've talked about before, but he hasn't gone to that level before to take that kind of a shot at Doug Whaley and, you know, previous uh, leadership, I guess, at One Bill's Drive. And it worked. I think it, it had the intended result of, hey, get off our backs that we didn't do anything at the trade deadline. Remember what, what those those other guys did. Afterwards, everybody's eating it up. You know, it's, it's the soundbite of the day. Best quote he's ever given. But I don't know if I like the look. I don't know about you. I mean, there's... There's something to, you know, having a bit of an edge and, and giving the occasional good sound bite, but Doug Whaley's been gone a long time. And if you're going to throw around, you know, things like that, statements like that, calling it irresponsible that what whatever they did, they never really did much at the deadline. So clearly they must not be referring to the deadline. Other things that Doug Whaley did. Contracts, free agent signings, tr- trading Trading up for Sammy Watkins. Exactly. Um, you know, giving up future assets for the now. And if you're going to do that, you better be – it strikes me as a little bit holier than thou. A little bit like they haven't made any mistakes, which they have. And they've given up future assets to get things in the now in drafts. They traded up for Josh Allen. They traded up for Zay Jones. They traded up for Tremaine Edmonds. They traded up for Cody Ford. So, you know, they traded a pick at the deadline a few years ago for Calvin Benjamin. They've done these things. They traded the pick that became Patrick Mahomes. You know, they started Nathan Peterman twice. So if you, I just think it's a little bit out of character for him to do that. And you haven't arrived yet, I guess is my point. You haven't proven that you're better than those guys you're doing things slightly differently but you haven't really proven that you're better just yet uh, well Matt just made my point Doug Whaley's not the one that traded for Kelvin Benjamin so it seems a bit of a cheap shot I can't really think of any deadline deals that the Bills made under Doug Whaley that you know you would say that was a direct reference Sean McDermott to them making that type of move so it just it does sort of seem like he's defending they're not making a trade by pointing out things that aren't really related to whether they made a trade or not this week. Do you think it is, all right, maybe it's not thinly veiled. It is out there wide in in the open if we assume he's talking about Doug Whaley. What if he's given Brandon Bean a tap the brakes? Yeah. Brandon Bean, the wheeler dealer. Maybe it was just like, (laughs) hey, Brandon... Let's let's not just go out there talking about how in which Brandon Bean said, "Hey, look, I, I'll, everybody knows I'm aggressive this time of year." He's actually made that statement. I mean, is it outside the realm of possibility that it was a Brandon Bean, Joe Shane? No way. Doesn't it usually no? go no, the I other mean, way it, though? It absolutely is a possibility. That's yeah. exactly okay. what I thought. Doesn't it usually go the other way? The coach is the one that wants the players now and the future be damned, and the GM is the one that takes the more. Uh, 10, yeah, but when you mentioned things. Kelvin Benjamin there, Jonah, it did it, 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 it's a thought. Brandon he said you're responsible in years past. He didn't say regimes past. That's right. right. He didn't. He didn't. So in a way, I guess it was veiled enough, right? That yeah, maybe, maybe and, we don't. There is enough smoke there for us to be able to see really who he's talking about. I will say this though, just as a point of order, as somebody who's a veteran of news conferences, 
It was a follow-up question. He had already said what he was going to say. So it's not as though he came out with a talking point of, I need to make a point to say this. It was a follow-up question, and it was towards the end of that in which it was almost like he was spinning his wheels a little bit, like he was just trying to elaborate and was failing to come up with a new way to elaborate. But, all right, my counter to my own point is, that is unlike Sean McDermott, because when he's done making a point, he's done making the point. He rarely gets trapped into saying something he doesn't want to say. So I don't think that he was just, it was just word salad. And I, I don't, I'm not ready to say that it was about Brandon Bean because he said for too many years. And, you know, it, true. So it, it very well could have been in part, you know, a, a bit of a, keeping that GM in check. But it could be, but for too many years could have been, it bled into our regime too. It it very much could have been. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack when you make a statement like that. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, places people can go with that statement. So I I just, I don't know. I I get it, right? It's a, it's a fun soundbite. It's, it's something that, you know, you like to see a little bit of fire out of your head coach and all that, but regardless of who he's taking the shot at, I just don't know that it's the best look when you haven't yet really accomplished all that much more than Doug Whaley, Rex Ryan, Doug Marone did. Yes, they made the playoffs, but Doug Marone went nine and seven too. Uh, I mean, nine and seven and back backing your way into the playoffs, that's not their goal. That never has been their goal. So until you prove that the guys that you pick and the decisions you make are the right ones. If Josh Allen isn't a good quarterback, then you then you did make a lot of irresponsible decisions to get to that. Trading Sammy Watkins and Ronald Ronald Darby, these guys who are good players in the NFL, trading, you know, Cordy Glenn kind of washed out in Cincinnati, but trading two second round picks and then trading the third round pick that you acquired in the Tyrod Taylor trade to move up and get Tremaine Edmonds, all these going all in on two pieces that we don't even know if they're good yet. And so it seems to me getting a little bit ahead of yourself to you know say you're the responsible one because you didn't make a trade deadline trade. Doug Whaley never did that either. I think, too, what – I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I didn't ask a follow-up question, obviously, because I wasn't there. But if I had a chance to chat with Sean McDermott about it, I think that the conversation would have to be about the whole about the culture aspect of it, the process. And while on one hand, we may view it as a jab and perhaps he does, too. But my guess is that what he's trying to do here is once again, reiterate that we've turned the page on the way it used to be the 17 years of not making the playoffs, that we do it differently now of getting people in the building to stop thinking, well, here there's the same old bills or whatever, or this is uh, at five and two. Well, the last time they were at five and two, what happened? The last time they were at four and one, what happened? We talked about it on this show about how there's these collapses. Maybe Weren't it's just his way. In 2017 though, when they made the trade. Yeah. Yes. For Calvin Benjamin. But, but yeah. But I buttressing this, uh, this belief of just because it happened under, Rex Ryan and Doug Marone and Chan Gailey, you know, like maybe I, I, there are still people in the building, not many of them, but there's still people in the building. You're trying to exercise this 
this toxicity of of what they've experienced in the past, what they've lived through. Even people in that building who had no say over how good the Bills were going to be on the field or not, it still can bleed into a malaise, you know, within of, you know, oh my God, we're coming off this loss. Here we go again. And maybe he's just trying to combat a sense of, no, this is not here we go again. We're a totally different team. We don't do that. We're, we're just, the only thing that's the same is the uniform. And perhaps that's the point he's trying to make. It could have been a, Vague reference in some way to Russ Brandon and any perception of the Bills making moves just to appease the fan base and sell tickets in the past because there was a lot of clamoring from the fans for trades at all sorts of different positions. If you make every trade that fans seem to want, they would have made four, five, six of them. They'd have no draft picks left. Yeah, so it could have been a little bit of a response to, you know, we're not going to do things just because there's a public call for them to be done. This is We, we have a plan and we're going to stick to the plan whether – it seems like we need immediate help or not. I agree with that, Jonah. And I think that, and this is not a McDermott Bean thing. This goes back ever since I've been in Buffalo, uh, 2000, or it's just that's when I became cognizant of how fans think here. And I think that Bills fans need to be gently reminded every so often that this this is not the National Hockey League. And I think that when you're in a town where your two sports are or where the NHL is as prominent as it is. And there are very few. It's like Canada and Buffalo, right? Um, where else is hockey so prominent? Uh, or Nashville, I guess. You know, to, I mean, Detroit, the, Minnesota, but not, maybe but not that, to the same level. But it's not level. the number one. It's not even the number two sport in those towns right. because you have baseball, you have the NBA, you have, you know, uh, even in Boston, which is considered such a hockey hotbed, it's number four. Maybe Philadelphia, Chicago, Philly. But I mean, only when the Blackhawks are good. Chicago has two different baseball teams, yeah. and yeah, I mean, the NHL's probably not number one here though either. No, it's not, but it's number two. Where else is it number two? And Nashville is the only NFL NHL city out there. So I think it's Canada and Buffalo. Really, and if you want to throw Nashville in there, fine, but then you also have college sports that you need to contend with. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this, is I think fans in Buffalo are so in tune with hockey trade deadline and the fact that teams are just rolling over each other to make deals and that I think Bills fans, it's been rekindled now that Brandon Bean captures their imagination on what he this guy makes trades. So I think, I think there are a lot of fans in Western New York that just fall back into hockey trade deadline frenzy excitement. And when you emerge from it with no trades for the bills, which is the norm, which is it's supposed to be that maybe that there was a need for uh, the bills as an organization to say, Hey, look guys, you know, we're going to, you know, why not Jamal Adams? Why, why did you kick the tires on, Trent Williams, did you kick the tires on whatever? Who, like he was going to face a bunch of questions, and it's like, look, guys, this isn't what we do. And, and I know that's Jonah, what you were well, pretty much saying. There was also kind of a league wide, it seemed like, expectation that there'd be a ton of trades and big blockbuster trades yesterday that didn't happen. ESPN had a show all right. for hours and Which hours that they didn't have anything up. to talk about. It was sort yeah. of like they were expecting something that was never going to happen, almost like it was the NHL or the NBA or Major League Baseball. Sh- yep. And there maybe there have been some of those type of deals in the last couple of years, there's more and more trades in the NFL than there used to be, but it was a little bit of a reminder that the NFL is different and trade deadline day in the NFL isn't the same thing as trade deadline day in other sports. And I think that's great. I think that's fine. The not making a trade, 
you know, the idea that Melvin Gordon or A.J. Green or whoever else you want to bring up that, that the Bills were linked to, not giving up your draft picks to get one of those guys, that's fine. And, you know, saying that there wasn't a responsible deal out there so they stayed put is fine. But doing it and in the next breath, you could have ended it there, right? And then nobody's really talking about it. It's just like, yeah, that makes sense because nobody else made trades either. But to, you know, have to throw more dirt on, you know, Doug Whaley's cold body is like, you know, come on. Like, it's been a while. You can't lean on that forever. And you also can't stand up there. And I know you think you're better at this and and better at building a roster and picking players. But until you've got the results to to stand on, it's hard to – there's people out there in this fan base who probably aren't convinced that you're any better at this. So, you know, those teams weren't bad, uh, the teams that Doug Whaley put together. There was quite a bit of talent on it. In fact – Sean McDermott made the playoffs in his first year largely with a lot of Doug Whaley's players. So um, I just think it's early to be standing up there with the attitude of, you know, we're better at this. We, this is this is new around here. This is how we do it. I also – and one more point to make because uh, Matt and I, before the show, as we were preparing for it, we, just, we were trying to figure out if really how close – Sean McDermott has come to saying anything like this or what have you. And and so uh, I just did a search of my transcripts because I get them all sent to me in, in my email. So I did a search of Sean McDermott and irresponsible. And it is a word that he uses commonly when talking about maintaining uh, your team for the long term, not just doing the short term. So he talked about it when referring to Nathan Peterman doing the responsible, not being irresponsible with Josh Allen uh, by throwing him out there to start right away, making roster moves that are good for the short term, and it would be irresponsible just to do the short term. So it's a word that he uses before, has used a lot of times in any time reference that I've seen, in transcripts anyway, uh, pertaining to the long-term future of the team. So that would apply on trade deadline too, getting rid of assets which help your long-term growth to get something right now for for short-term satisfaction. And I do think that's the right approach with some of the guys that were out there. And the fact that no moves were made yesterday suggests that the price tags on a lot of these guys were just too high. And so I don't think they're wrong in that sense, but they have given up assets for the short-term satisfaction before. Trade up to get Josh Allen. Got to have him. Got to have Tremaine Edmonds instead of Leighton Vanderesh. You know, you got to have... Cody Ford and instead of the next best offensive tackle. So they they do do it with draft picks at times. You know, what was it, two-fourths they gave up to get Dawson Knox, uh, move up into the third and get Dawson Knox. So they do these things um, at times. And it's, it's something that I think the deadline, they've been more active than Doug Whaley ever was. So it was weird timing for it is, is more – than anything, and they he has taken some veiled shots before about the salary cap, and this is the hand we were dealt, and we had to dig our way out of this, and we've fixed it now, and all that stuff. But this was certainly the most direct, direct hit. I think Doug Whaley's in Stamford, Connecticut, right now, probably smartened a little bit over that one. Probably fielding a few texts. Yeah. Hey, did uh, you see what McDermott said today? <laughs> Maybe he's fielding texts from Ross Brandon. Hey. 
Let's get Russ Brandon on the. Can we see if Russ Brandon's available? Yeah, you got a second. Hold on. One. Yeah, let's, let's call see. him and then we'll uh, we'll take if if he, let's assume he's available. So we'll let's push back this break. All right. Thank you for calling New Era Cap. If you know your party's extension, please dial it now. For a company directory by name, press star. For the spell the last and first name, then press pound. For Q, press seven. Bobby, I gotta Z, actually start nine. remembering for his help, press directory. His, yeah, why we? Because then it's kind of yeah. silly for uh, us to go through this every time. For Forgot the Thunderwolf hotline read before. Extension. Well, if he's available, <laughs> pound to cancel, press star. Wait while I transfer your call. Sorry, oh. Russ Brandon is not available. Damn it. Record your message at the tone. What? When no, that's I'll, yeah, I'll, we don't want to I'll, call there, right? I'll call him during the break. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave the message during the break. He's like never there, it seems like. I mean, it seems like, but. But I'll bet you he texted uh, Doug Whaley today just to say, hey, hey, bro, did you see what, uh, <laughs> you see what Dermot said? <laughs> All right. When we come back on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by CTBK, we're going to talk to Kay. We're going to talk to Gene Kirshner about what's going on at Santa Anita. We're going to talk about the Breeders' Cup. He's going to give us his picks. If you are somebody who is into betting on the horses, McKenzie, the Bob Baffert horse, getting a lot of love, as Bob Baffert horses do, right? The best of the best. With Matthew Fairburn, Jonah Bronstein, Bobby Rosati, we'll talk to Gene Kirshner when we come back on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo, Travis, Bison, Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants on Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Welcome to the Tim Graham Show. The fan. He was in for the drinks and the skirts, allegedly. <laughs> Jason, Jason drinks and skirts. Feel free to call in with your favorite Derek Roy story. <laughs> 270, 1270. And on the fans app. Free to download in the app the store. The Tim Graham Show. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo, Travis, Bison, Kirshner, CPAs, and business consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Enterprises. Looking for mergers and acquisitions from CTBK. Maybe we can get some advice on that before our next guest uh, leaves the studio. Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic is also here with producer Bobby Rosati. Gene Kirshner, the K of CTBK, is here. Gene Kirshner, you can follow him at Equispace, as in equine space, but leave off that e-q-u-i-n-e equine space s-p-a-c-e at oh geez i just butchered it again i'm trying to do it in my head i should have written it down at equispace at e-q-u-i-s-p-a-c-e did I get it finally, Gene? You got it right. Gene I, Kirshner's I, here. And, I, you know, I, I know you have some trouble with the firm name, too. <laughs> it, nice. it actually helps that I, I met Charlie Shampoo. That helps. Shampoo, Shampoo was tough at first, but there are too many S's in the name, and they're different sounding S's. Shampoo, Travis, B-Saw, Sh- B- Kirshner, CPAs, so there's an there's an S there at the end of CPA, but it's a Z sound. CPAs and biz business consultants. Every S sound that the human mouth can make 
is in that. And it took me a little while to get going on it. Gene, what do you think when Tim, I, and I did this when I hosted too, we mess up the sponsor name, but then we double back and give you about five, ten minutes of extra talk just to make up for it. It's all, that's all good. Yeah, that was the most enunciated ad read, <laughs> perhaps in the history of radio right there. And then I heard from Gene at some point, and he says, you know, we're rebranding to CTBK. And I said, thank God. <laughs> but I still like to give out the shampoo Travis Besaw and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. See, I can say it without actually looking at it. Maybe that's how. But Equispace, at Equispace, you can follow Gene Kirshner there on Twitter and also in the Buffalo News. He's the Buffalo News' horse racing columnist. And uh, Gene, so huge weekend in horse racing. People like to think of the Triple Crown races uh, and, of course, and all the pageantry there. But this really is the Super Bowl of horse racing. Uh, the Preakness, uh, I'm sorry, the Breeders' Cup World Championships. I'm getting ahead of myself because I did a little research. I know the Preakness winner is, is supposed it, to be right. in the field. That's correct. Well, all right. Well. So Santa Anita Park in California this weekend, Friday and Saturday. You're going to be there. I guess just give us your thoughts on this event and uh and what makes it so special relative to the triple crown races well it's really cool it's like 14 championship races over two days um and back in 2007 they expanded it uh, from one day to two days um it was thought up of 36 years ago of uh, an event because it didn't you know the sport never had a world series or a super bowl of its own so the uh, concept came forth, and that they'd move it around the country so that other factions of the horse racing population and fans could uh, could see it. So, over the years, it's been revamped. The, f the first day was the Phillies' day, you know, and then the boys would run on Saturday. They that got a little bit of uh, you know backsplash, negative backsplash in today's PC world. Sure, obviously. Uh, and, and now, the Phillies and now, can win. They, absolutely, and we got one in the classic that we can talk about. And uh, ten years after uh, Zenyatta won it right there at Santa Anita Park, the first female to ever win the classic. Um, but then they, they they moved it so that uh, Friday's races, there's five races on Friday. They're all juveniles, all two year two year olds. So it's Future Stars Friday. A lot of Fs there. Right. And then Saturday, I would have trouble then, with that. Anything multiple uh, resonance. And Saturday is uh Consonance. There's, there's nine championship races. Sibilates. Um all kinds of races, sprints, mile races, turf sprints, mile and a quarter on the turf. The classic is the, is the classic distance of a mile and a quarter on the dirt, and that's the same distance the Kentucky Derby is run at. You've got a lot of international horses coming over. Uh, Aiden O'Brien has brought over 17 horses from the UK um, to run, and, and it's really hard when you're trying to handicap and you're looking at the past performances, and they don't match up you know, what we do over here in America. So uh, they don't give you the running line, so you can't really tell how a horse is progressing through a race. Um, so it's interesting. You know, it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of excitement. The top horses for the year are there. The horse of the year will probably be determined you know, somewhere along the line, right now the number one ranked horse is running in the Breeders' Cup turf. His name is Bricks and Mortar. He's a uh, Chad Brown trainee. Um, but then there, there could be some horses that step up in the classic. Uh, you know, Code of Honor is one um, that won the Travers, and there's a good chance that if he wins, then he could, you know, be considered uh, for Horse of the Year. Alate, who's a uh, the female, the, the mare that's running in the uh, in the classic, has also got a shot at it. So, it's just exciting. There's a you know there's a good international flavor to it. There's horses from all over the world. 
And the last yeah. time this race was held at Santa Anita, or I should I shouldn't say the race. You just got done saying it's fourteen races. The last time this event was held at Santa Anita, hundred eighteen thousand four eighty four was the attendance. So, I mean, this is uh, a huge event, uh, and it is the uh, the final race of the of the season. And as you say, it's uh, the the horse of the year is is up in the air. It, there's no clear cut choice right now. So we're probably going to learn who that is. Uh, this weekend. Uh, McKinsey, uh, let's talk about McKinsey, uh, if we can, Gene. Uh, as of, I think right now, about a 3-1 to one favorite uh, and has the best odds. That is the Bob Baffert-trained horse. Uh, and I read a stat, first or second, this horse is finished in all but one of its 13 starts. That's an impressive stat. You throw in Bob Baffert, uh, the uh, jockey will be uh, Joel Rosario, but how much, when it comes to betting, does Bob Baffert influence the number? A ton. Because, because he's a well-known name. He's well-recognized. Um, it's the reason McKenzie is 3-1 to one favorite coming into the race off a loss, uh, which, is, which is extremely strange. Uh, but it's a, he's a home, hometown track colt, a uh, four-year-old son of Street Sense, who won the Derby in 2007. Um, his only loss... Uh, or only time he didn't hit the board was in the classic last year at uh, Churchill Downs, and I actually picked him. So <laughs> I think he came in dead last. So so he's he's come in a lot better since. So are you going to pick him again? No, I'm I mean, not going to pick him. No, he burned me once. So all right, yeah, yeah. all right. So is this bias? And he's going to be three to one. You know, I see. You know, so so I, I mean, I'm going to try to beat him with something a little bit better, uh, better priced. Uh, I'm I'm leaning towards. Either higher power, who's a who's a who's also a home track uh, horse, uh, John Sadler trained, uh, Flavian Pratt, who uh, got put up in the Derby on Country House, um, is a jockey. He's had a tremendous meet out there, um, and I also like uh, Pletcher's horse, Vino Rosso. Uh, he's you know typically I try to stay away from the East Coast horses when in Santa Anita they typically don't fare well there. Is it because of the um, travel? Yeah, some of it's the travel. Some of it, they're just not used to the track. You know, they've been running on the Naira tracks all year long, uh, and they ship over in a, into different quarters. They're not in the same barn. You know, you got these store, you know, higher power and McKinsey got their own, they're in their own sheds that they've been uh, been there for months training. So Right. So it makes a difference. It, def- it definitely does. Uh, Vino Rosso, named for red wine, obviously, has uh, is, is got Irad Ortiz aboard, who's a really a tremendous jockey. Um, he comes off a loss, although he came in fir- first in the Jockey Club Gold Cup, but he was disqualified in Code of Honor and ended up beating him uh, due to a bumping incident in the stretch. Now, War of <clears throat> Will, uh, that's the horse that I got tripped up on a little earlier when I mentioned the Preakness. Uh, War of Will won the Preakness, but is at 20 to 1. Okay, now I'm a, a neophyte at this. I can, with some research and help of somebody who can translate uh, the racing form for me, I can get back. It's, it would be like me. I used to know how to do this, especially when I lived in Vegas. Uh, <laughs> but it would almost be like me calling on my high school Spanish uh, if I needed to uh, go to Mexico. Like I, I might need somebody to help me out you know, with it a little bit. But uh, there are probably people who know even less than that who like to bet on these races. So if you have a horse that's won the Preakness, 
How does it go from a champion on that day to 20 to 1 in Santa Anita? What's funny is when you, when you say you got tripped up on, on him, he was the horse that almost got tripped in the uh, Kentucky Derby right. when maximum security came over and he went back. Uh, so unintentional. That unintentional. was not. Yeah, yeah, that no, was not un, any kind un, unintentional, of but he genius. Came back, no, I'm he unintentional came, on my part. Oh, right, of right, trying right, to be clever. Genius, very ironic. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, he came back and won the Preakness that day. He was the best that day. Um, what I like to look at in the morning li- when I'm looking at uh, the past performances, um, the reason he's twenty to one is his recency. You know, his last his, his form is off. The last three races, uh, he he didn't show up in the Belmont as uh, as as uh, I think he was the second choice, um, and then in the Traver or the Jim Dandy, which he was prepping for the Traver- Travers. Mark Cassie had planned to run him there, and he just he didn't show up that day. Uh, and then lastly, he he uh, lost by a length in the Pennsylvania Derby at three to one. So it just recency tells me he's not really in form right now. Um, he did have a good workout at Santa Anita last week. Uh, it's, he was second out of fifty-one at the distance at four furlongs. So, you know. There, there's arguments that could be made, and you know, take a shot at twenty to one. I'm not going to, I, and but I'm I've been against him all year long, and I, uh, one of my pals that writes for the Times Union, he's he he likes Warwell, and I just kick, kick, shake my head every time I see him. I'm like I'm not going for it, you know. He, he beat me once, but he hasn't beat me since. We're in conversation with Gene Kirshner, horse uh, racing columnist for the <clears throat> Buffalo News. You can follow him at Equispace on Twitter. Uh, he will be attending the 2019 Breeders' Cup World Championships at Santa Anita Friday and Saturday. And, and Eugene, you just mentioned there about uh, the training and wh- how much of it is public. How much of training is not public? Is there Are there things that, and this is where the sharps around the, the track and get their good information, but how much of it is out there in the open or must be out there in the open so that way you can have the information uh, that you need to make the to make the smartest wager well they've actually made reforms at the track that the the trainers actually have to apply two days in advance before they work their horse now it's in anita so um workouts are are published and timed um you know do some trainers go out before the lights go on and train their horse so it's harder for folks to time them yes it happens um but I are they know, responsible I for? As, I don't think there's as much as maybe you're hinting at. Right? Uh, that, are they responsible for po- uh, for posting their times, or do outsiders time them? Um, the track has a track. Uh, Got it. Okay. Clocker that, that handles it. Every workout, mm-hmm. or supposed to be every workout. Every workout. Every every um, scheduled workout. Right. Now they they they, they may gallop. You know. I, on the off days, I mean they're they're always stretching their legs, and it's it's just part of the training regimen, but. You know they'll work them out and say I want I want this horse to go four four furlongs today. He tells the jo- you know the exercise rider the jockey, and they'll they'll make sure they stretch the legs. He'll the, the trainer will tell the jockey or the rider, you know I want you to go hard. You know I want you to go easy early hard late. I mean so you can look at the times and say, you know you don't you don't know what the what the trainer was telling the jockey that day. It would be like watching do, an NFL right? workout and saying, "What are we?" They might not be working on that today. Like you That's might correct. watch it and say, "Oh, Josh Allen really overthrew that guy at practice. Uh, he had a bad day." Uh, but if you really knew what play was called, you may say, "Well, the receiver ran the wrong route, or maybe they were trying to get him to to stretch the the defense, or whatever." Absolutely, and then and there's there's guys that make a living, you know, that are out there every day. So they they can tell the difference of what you know what what the trainer's trying to accomplish, and they actually then will sell their information uh, to 
to willing buyers. <laughs> Got it. What are the what are the ways to pick up a little tidbit here or there? Uh, a lot of times. Well, for me and a reporter, when I'm back in the barns, just, just talking to the to the um, to the trainers. You know, I got a nice tidbit on the on the Belmont and made sure I put it in my article to to to, to make it public for everyone. Uh, Sir Winston, uh, Mark Cassie told me, you know, if there's any horse that's going to get this mile and a half distance, it's Sir Winston, and and that was his other horse because he had, he had War Will, who was basically going into the race as the, you know, second choice coming off the Preakness, and uh, I made sure I wrote about it and said, you know, hey consider this horse you know i think i put him third or fourth in my uh in my mm-hmm. picks and he ended up winning is that and i guess that's a uh are, are lights going off or are sirens in your mind when uh when when somebody kind of sells his other horse over the one that you're well, talking about that day yeah. <laughs> he had a big smile on his face and you know but you know we were, we were mostly talking about war of will the whole time and when he said that i went back the next day with with another writer that was just was just arriving and i said we, we got to talk about sir winston a little a little bit more you know and get the information out of him so. i'm hesitant you know, with these with these uh and i guess i don't know how much jonah or matt follow it but uh, how horse racing that is, but I guess this that would be tantamount to us walking up to a veteran and asking about some rookie and the one and they say, "Oh yeah, um, Joe Joe Smith, yeah, he's he's having a good training camp, but the guy you really ought to be <laughs> looking at is." You know, Larry Brown, and you're like, oh well, well, okay, I guess Larry Brown's having a pretty good camp, you know. Yeah, Baffert's usually good for uh, some good information, but he won't he won't tell you about the big race. He'll tell you about something on the undercard, like oh, I got this one in the second race that's you know looking good, and you know, so it it, it depends. You know, some guys are more forthright than others when you're talking to them. Mm-hmm. I think you probably see the same thing. Some guys will just you know toe the line and. I'm going by the process, and that's it. And right. That's what that's what you hear. I don't want to close my co-hosts out here. I don't know if you guys have anything for Gene. I'm curious how the the atmosphere at this race. Tim mentioned the attendance is very high. How does you know you hear so much about the Derby it being a bucket list item for people, even the the other races that that people get into. How's the atmosphere, or is it more people who are pretty you know serious horse racing fans? I think um, the Derby is more of an event, so you get a lot more. Hey, I'm, it's a fashion event. Right. I'm going to wear my hat and you know dress up, you know to the nines. This is this is really the horse players championships. So you, you get a lot of sharps out there. Uh, there's a lot of money to be made because there's really good horses. There's full fields. Uh, there's you know 12 to 14 horses in each race. So uh, the betting is you you can you can make a um, a daily double between two horses, one that's a favorite in one race and six to one in the other, and it'll pay 50 bucks. Where that happens on a, you know, Thursday at Saratoga, it's going to pay 20 bucks. Right. You know, so just because there's so much money in the pools. Um, and it's just, uh, it's exciting, you know, and, and uh, I think the crowds really get into it uh, at Santa Anita. It's, it's They're very knowledgeable about horse racing out there. Um that there's also there's also a lot of fashion too, but 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 this is really um, the horse players uh, championships too. What's it like uh, from an OTB standpoint? Now you're going to be at the race, so it's hard for you to. I'm not, not the atmosphere of being at the OTB, but is this less smoky? <laughs> That's true. 
Is there? But is there anything to be for the people who are going to be betting who are listening to this show? They're not going to be flying out to San Diego and taking part of it. Is there? Is there anything to the OTB experience about this that's that's to be mentioned? Um, geez, the last time I was there for a OTB was probably in the two thousands, and it the the parlors will be packed. I'll tell you that. And yeah, there'll be a lot of. Uh, uh, players, it's it's a weekend. It's it's your triple crown players, you know that 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 enjoy the sport. They'll get involved a little bit, you know, just because you know the juveniles. Uh, you know, it's the big race leading up to the Derby. You know, it's it's the first glimpse of the two year olds that are next year's Derby stars, uh, mm-hmm. three year old crop. And there there's one in there that looks really really good. Uh, he's the um, he's the morning line favorite, eight to five. Uh, Dennis's moment. Uh, and Dale Romans has never had a uh, a Derby winner, so he's a, a Churchill Downs guy. Uh, Sentimental favorite, big, also big fella. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, so funny story about him. There was a, there's a fellow that put out a newsletter at uh, at Churchill called Indian Charlie, and he's been banned from I, th- I think there in Keeneland. Uh, but uh, he wrote something kind of derogatory to, to Mr. Romans, who's about 350 pounds, and he took a swing at him, and his pants fell down. <laughs> I think the uh, the backside had never seen such a thing like that before. <laughs> uh, so so that would be great if he would he won he he was uh, the trainer of Keen Ice who um, upset American Pharaoh in the um, in the Travers that year, um, and uh, you know he's a he's a good he's a good trainer. Um, like to see him win one, you know, and he's got he's got a real sharp one here. So it's just trying to keep him keep him healthy all the way through uh, to the Derby is really difficult, and uh, make sure you get you uh, obtain enough points to win the Derby. So that'll be Friday's feature race. Uh, I think there's like eight horses. There's one, uh, I think it's a Baffert horse, uh, Eight Rings, uh, named after uh, Bill Belichick's Eight Rings. Uh, so interesting. I'm reading a Q&A here you did about a year ago. It said that Santa Anita is your second favorite racetrack after Saratoga, Woodbine being number, being number three. Just wondering kind of what factors into what are your favorite tracks and why you know those two are, are the ones that stick out for you. Well, Woodbine for the food, definitely, <laughs> uh, in the press box. Oh, you are a sports <laughs> racer. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> they put out a great spot. Well, actually, they, they do a great job from a, from a media relations, just uh, the access they give us and um, – um, the availability of the uh, the jockeys and the trainers there is great. For Santa Anita, it's just it's probably the most beautiful track I've ever been to. You got the San Gabriel Mountains in the background. It's just it, the first year I was there uh, covering was uh, 2012, and I was in the outside press box, and I'm just like, man, just looking up at these mountains. It's like this is a good day at the office, you know, looking out and uh, seeing the mountains and just a, a beautiful track and. Uh, very well uh, manicured. Uh, Saratoga is where I fell in love with the sport. So, uh, if, you've, if you've never been there, it's just a it's a great place. There's a lot of history there. Um, great racing, uh, full fields there. You know, every day, and you know the best of the best. The trainers all they all want to win. Owner the owners want to win there. And know? a town that seems built up around it too. Oh, absolutely. It's and almost like uh, I don't know. To me, it's almost like what Cooperstown is to baseball, uh, it's, and it's. It's not exactly where it was invented or anything like that of the lore, but it's like everything's just built around it, and everybody. And it's, it's got it's, a real there's his, an era. There's an air of cool at, at when you're at Saratoga. It's got a historic feel. It's the it's the oldest um, sporting venue in North America. 
Saratoga Race. Oh, I didn't realize yep. that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, maybe it is like Cooperstown then yeah, in that regard. Ab- absolutely. That's All a, right. That's a good analogy. I hate to go from well, one part of the to sport to the next. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're educated on this. I think this can educate a lot of people. When we come back on the Tim Graham Show brought to you by Shampoo, Travis Besaw, and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. I want to talk about what's been happening at Santa Anita because it's very much at the forefront, and I think that NBC will be talking about this quite a bit, especially with Tim Layden, now on NBC Sports staff, the former Sports Illustrated writer who was uh, and still is a brilliant horse racing uh, columnist and reporter. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about this this weekend, and that's the dark side of horse racing has really kind of settled at Santa Anita this year and what can be done, what steps are being taken uh, to address this um, and more. Maybe we'll get some more. Uh, we'll we'll finish up the segment with some picks. Like maybe you're, well, you, yeah. you say you're not going to finalize. All right, we'll get. Yeah, I'll, give you some, I'll give you some indications. Okay. When we come back on the Tim <laughs> Graham Show, brought to you by CTBK here on Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. I do have mnemonic devices that the we will Tim have. Prominent, prominent listener sent uh, this gift to me. I will have a big unveiling. Jim Brown's I'll still a free agent. This is Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo, Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants, here in studio with... The K of CTBK, Gene Kirshner, horse racing columnist for the Buffalo News. You can follow him on Twitter, at Equispace. And, uh, Gene, I, I didn't want to let you go uh, without uh, asking you about what's been a troubling uh, trend. At, well, it kind of, it's a horse racing issue uh, and has been uh, the controversy. It's been the talking point for generations, but really it's descended upon Santa Anita Park, which is where the Breeders' Cup will be held this weekend, in which 36 horses have died uh, since last December. There were 29 between December and June when the, the season ended uh, there. So, But two deaths just over the past weekend. On Sunday, a two-year-old filly named Bye Bye Beautiful, sadly ironic name, uh, had to be put down because of a race injury. And then uh, uh, Friday, a six-year-old mare, GQ cover girl, uh, had training injuries to both front legs and had to be put down, bringing the number to 36 deaths at Santa Anita. Um, I, it's been covered, uh, and with the Breeders' Cup coming up, it's going to be at the forefront of, I think, a lot of the coverage this weekend. People are going to be talking about it, holding their breath that something doesn't happen this weekend. Uh, what is, how would you explain what the issues are surrounding these deaths? Uh, well, I think a lot of it, um, occurred earlier in the year. Um, as you said, there was 29 and 11 of those came in training. So it wasn't in, even on the track during, um, during actual races, um, there was a, a really, I've been telling people there's a, like a confluence of events that occurred. There was a, there was an issue with the weather. They got about 20 inches of rain last last winter, which was uh, a lot more than it's typically uh, that happens at that time of year. Um, and to give you an indication of you know why that is, there was 111 off tracks, um, which would be muddy, sloppy, um, or just 
uh, deemed off versus 18 the same period in the prior year. So what the track superintendent did, and we'll get to that issue also, is 62 of those off tracks, they actually sealed them, which is they take heavy sleds and they compress uh, the surface to prevent moisture from leaking down into the lower levels. And what that does is it hardens the surface. Um, you know, the surface becomes is created to be you know much much more difficult to penetrate, um, which in turn is harder on the horse's ankles. And if you look at a horse's ankle, it's like the size of a coke bottle mm -hmm. basically. Um, so that that was one of the things I think that that probably added to it. The second was that they had a superintendent that was there for four decades and he retired in December. And I think the new superintendent lost the track. Um, and they hired him back uh, when they closed the track in March for three weeks to get it back into, uh, into more of a, you know, to do his thing that superintendents do to tracks, uh, you know, add more sand, add more dirt, whatever, whatever was necessary. Wait, you know, maybe, maybe they didn't run, but they wouldn't have run on, on those off tracks on certain days. It would just cancel. There have been um, some uh, accusations, at least in the reporting that I saw, about the, uh, the there were more races that the, uh, the, the Stronic group. <laughs> but then also that the, it, there's more synthetic track. There's a synthetic, synthetic track, which is a little more expensive and considered to be safer for the horses, and that mm -hmm. San Anita was going to more of a just sand and dirt. It was, on the, it was a little cheaper. And, but is that because they, of the weather? Uh, no, no. In 2009, they actually had a synthetic track there, and they switched oh. back to dirt, which is a traditional sand and dirt mix. Um, you know, but you're, you're right. That was the third thing I was going to mention on the confluence of events was that uh, they brought in the uh, racing secretary from Gulfstream and tried to employ the same strategy they did there, which was to get more horses into the races um, to, you know, increase the betting handle which in turn increases profitability for the track. Uh, so a lot of trainers were complaining that, um, that this was, a, you know, they were pressured to run their horses when they weren't ready to run. Um, and I, I'm sure that had, that, that had some contribution to this issue. Um, but once Dennis Moore was brought back in, I mean, I think before that in March, the incident level was 4.4 deaths per 1,000. And he, after, you know, through the, through the time they reopened the track at the end of March through June, it went down to 1.86. Still over the national average of 1.68, mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but much better than that, that time period where there was a, a, a significant amount. You know, the national media got a hold of it. So all of a sudden, like you said, well, there's two last week. Well, it, on average, it's probably going to happen, um, you know, 1.68 times per 1,000 races. Um, you know, I, I think it began at any time there was a horse that died, it became front page news at that point because because of the um, um, concentration of deaths that happened in that time period, that three month time period, and the rate was doubled, like almost you know more than double than the national average. So, to me, I I, I wonder. I guess I ask you as a, as a journalist and somebody who loves the sport, and I'm somebody who has a passion for boxing and loved the sport of boxing. I don't love it as much anymore. I think I could probably fall back in love with it again if I followed it. But uh, when I started covering the NFL, I just didn't have the time to to spend covering the sport. And it just also happened to fall off a cliff right around the time I stopped covering it too. So I have, I've had no, there's no reason for me to get back into it. 
But as somebody who covers the sport and loves it, um, how do you feel when these types of things happen? Because there are so many outside criticisms of it, and I'm sure you want to defend the sport, but at the same time, you're somebody who's a, a reasonable human being. Uh, I guess how do you how do you balance or reconcile that as somebody who who loves the sport and cares for for these horses and, and something like this is happening? Well, I'll say it's never easy when you see a horse go down and, and have to be euthanized. I mean, it's, it's just it's not an easy thing to watch. Um, you know, a hush goes over the press box, and it's 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 just not it's definitely not fun. You know, but you know we have to hold uh, the powers that be accountable. Uh, and that's why the reporting that's been done is is put pressure on the sport um, to to put in safety reforms um, to restrict you know the the use of certain drugs, uh, steroids and um, anti-inflammatories. Um, and I think you'll see there's a lot of protocols that are going in this weekend. I think they'll talk a lot about it on NBC over the uh, you know over the two days of some of the safety protocols. I know everybody's going to be holding their breath that nothing happens. Uh, because it'll be, you know, it won't be that a late one was classic. It'll be, you know, horse went down in the Breeders' Cup. Right. And there'll be a lot of I told you so's from whether it be, even people who are in the horse racing industry yeah. who have who've been uh, um, who've been cautious about what's going on at Santa Anita. Um, the thing, uh, you know, and you mentioned all the different protocols that are going into it. And that's why I wanted to ask you these things, not to put you on the spot about uh, that the sport is bad, but I think there are a lot of people who casually follow horse racing, and like you say, it's been national news. If you are somebody who doesn't follow horse racing close, the things that you would have heard were you hear the Triple Crown in the Breeders' Cup, and then in between it was all these horses keep dying at Santa Anita. Mm -hmm. So these are the things that it being able to talk to you a little more in depth about it, 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 it it's, uh, it's educational for people who just see a headline and, and, uh, and wonder what's going on with, with horses. So these horses are very well taken care of is, and that's, uh, absolutely obviously, uh, way more so than probably, uh, family members. Uh, I, I don't want to, I don't know if there maybe, maybe there are Bafferts out there who don't get taken care of as well as some of Bob's horses. I don't know, but, uh, let's get back to it. Let's make some picks. Uh, regarding uh, regarding these races, you mentioned. I guess do you just want to stick with the the main event uh, on yeah. on Saturday, which is the six million dollar purse uh, and uh, one and a quarter mile, three years old and up. Any any horse can be in it, right? You just have to be minimum three, right? Yeah, uh, you have to be three years old. Yeah. What's uh, but it's not. Uh, there's not a limit like there are in some of the other race at the Triple Crown races, That's right? You, they, so you they can, are restricted to three year olds. Absolutely. Could you bring like a horse out of retirement and be like, all right, like, like boxing, like could, could, uh, Sylvester Stallone come back at seven and let's, <laughs> let's see what, let's see what Zenyatta's got. Let's put Zenyatta back out there. Yeah. No. Zenyatta's been a mommy. So I yeah, think, okay. uh, yeah. I well that, Hey, maybe there should be <laughs> all-star races and exhibitions for this. There you go. Okay. Uh, so what do you think? I'm leaning towards uh, Vino Rosso. You know, he won out there the Gold Cup back in May, so he's got a win over the track. Even though he's an East Coast horse, he's a, he's by Curlin. Uh, his, that's his sire who um, who won the 2007 Breeders' Cup Classic. There's a you know a lot of times you look at the uh, 
the sire, and if they've done well in the same race, you know, a lot of times they uh, it's something to to take note. I know. I want I confirmation it, I on it. this from from an eyewitness. <laughs> I wrote down only four horses, and War of Will I just put down because uh, yeah, yeah. because he won the Preakness, but there are only three other horses I mentioned, and Vino Rosso is one of them. On my notes, I have Vino Rosso right here in my notes. I, I like the I like the mare late too. I mean, she's six to one on the morning line. It's got Jose in the in the irons for Bill Mott. Bill Mott's won the uh, classic twice. I like the uh, breeding and Medaglia de Oro out of a distorted humor mare. Uh, she's three for three at a mile and a quarter, uh, so she's she definitely could do it. She's getting a, a weight break also by being a female. Uh, so she gets a three-pound weight break on what, you know, the jockey and the, the, everything that's on board can't be more than 123 pounds. Uh, so those those are two. I, Owendale was my Preakness pick. You know, he's kind of my uh, sentimental, you know, long shot. Uh, not sure how where he's at. 15 to 1. Okay. Javier Castellano is my favorite jockey, so... Yeah, he's aboard. He's a he'll be a late closer. Uh, he's won the two O Derbies, the Oklahoma and the Ohio, uh, which are more second level Grade Three races. But you know he he'll be coming late for Brad Cox, and uh, uh, I'd like to see uh, him in the mix. And then uh, yeah, what what kind of you know if a horse if horses could talk to each other, I wonder what the uh, what the prestige would be if if that horse comes walking in and is like yeah yeah I'm pretty big in Ohio and Oklahoma <laughs> and the other. <laughs> Yeah, horses are like okay. Oh, and uh, Gene Kirshner's picking me. He's picking me as a long shot. He almost did it for me on the Preakness. He was coming late. He just he needed a little more racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then higher, higher power. I mentioned earlier six to one with Flavian Pratt aboard for John Sadler, who uh, who uh, who won this uh, race a few years ago. So. Uh, yeah, those are probably my my four that I'll I'll mix up and uh, you'll be able to see it on in Saturday's paper. All right. Well, I enjoy uh, reading your coverage in the Buffalo News, Gene, and uh, enjoy your time out at Santa Anita. Hopefully, uh, you have a good uh, uh, a good two days at the windows, and uh, we look forward to hearing back from you. Uh, more horse racing in the future. I find it fascinating, and uh, to come in and educate us, uh, I'm grateful. And uh, Maybe we'll have to find ways to have Shampoo, Travis, and Besaw on to join Kirshner at some point. That'd be fun. That would be. I, I went to the fights with Charlie Shampoo and uh, up at Niagara Falls two Fridays ago. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, all these CTBK guys are sportsmen. Absolutely. Kelly Besaw played soccer at Niagara. So What's Travis up to? He was a wrestler. So there you go. See, we got all kinds of stuff. We have Sean McDermott talk. Yeah, the CTBK Olympics. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes. We could do that. That sounds like a good, well, maybe as soon as the season's over, we'll get some CTBK Olympics going. Sounds good. Well, Tim, thanks for having me on and uh, talking horse racing and uh, appreciate the branding work you're doing with us. Well, I love it. I love it. CTBK, also known as Shampoo Travis Bison Kirshner. This is the K. Gene Kirshner. You can follow him at Equispace on Twitter. And in the Buffalo News, check out his coverage uh, of the Breeders' Cup World Championships. Uh, when's your first article appear? Friday's paper? Uh, Saturday's paper. I'll have a advance of the Classic and then uh, the recap on uh, Sunday. Awesome. We'll have uh, online stuff on the undercards probably Thursday, Friday. All right, Gene Kirshner, thanks for breaking it all down for us. When we come back, we're going to have Buffalo Bills tight end Lee Smith and Mark Summer. He's going to talk about the World Series and his biography on Rocky Calavito. He's going to be here in studio, too. And... 
we'll find a way to wedge in a little more gambling talk with Joel Staniszewski on the line from Vegas. When we come back on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Travis... (laughs) 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 Shampoo Travis Bison Kirshner. When are you going to get the CTBK? (laughs) On Sports Radio 1270. Celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, Shampoo, Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner is a full-service accounting firm that also offers expert consultation for growing and entrepreneurial businesses. Located in Amherst, CTBK specializes in maintaining a human connection and takes a bullish approach to their clients' goals and visions with a no-surprises billing policy. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, advice on acquisitions and mergers, or practically any other business operation need you can imagine, call CTBK for a consultation at 716-630-2400. That's 716-630-2400. Shampoo, Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner. A quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. 716-630-2400. Welcome to the Tim Graham Show. The Tim Graham Show. This is Sports Radio 1270. Just not hitting the hole. The fan. I know I'm going to get pimped. Yonk, huh? I love sausage. Thank you, Tim. Shocking. Dizzying. How did this happen? When I bring the lumber, it's all about the hole. Tim Graham Show. I diddled uh, some pole uh, over the weekend. Right. Not me so honia. I did have an accident with a menorah. Here we go. On Twitter at 1270, the fan. Wet ball. Taking your calls at 270-1270. What's up, baby? How you doing? Here we go. The Tim Graham Show. When's the last time you read the New Testament, huh? I'm trying to put my junk back in place. You're one of the guys I'm following on Twitter, you know. Well, I like this guy, uh, Tim Graham. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo Travis, Bison, Kirshner, CPAs, and business consultants. Great to have Gene Kirshner in studio there. First time we've ever talked horse racing. I find it educational. It's a beautiful sport. It's uh, much like boxing or hell. The NFL, beautiful sport, dangerous sport, but what sport isn't? Baseball, I guess. Esports. Esports, that's true. Poker. sport. Poker. The only thing that happens in poker is if you sit at a poker table long enough, as I have, is that your cuticles will actually turn green from the felt, get under your nails. It's no joke. You ever had a crazy game of poker? (laughs) That's a terrible song. I have had a crazy game of poker. It usually ends up with me uh, losing my underwear in the center of the table. It's a, you know, talk about it some other time. <laughs> Lee Smith is joining us on the NCCC Thunderwolves hotline. Lee, thanks for hanging on uh, hold with us there past the break. You doing all right? It's all good, man. Oh, yeah, I'm great. I, uh, I, there, I have a quibble here with your uh, Q&A uh, in the uh, Bill's Media Guide. Uh, where it's all the different things like fun fact, favorite food, favorite musical artist, all that stuff, first job. It says favorite cell phone app, and the answer is doesn't use any social media or apps. 
And then about an eighth of an inch below that, it says, Lee Smith is on Twitter, at Lee Smith uh, <laughs> underscore 86. Any, is, it acceptable, is it acceptable to uh, for your wife to run your Twitter account, or am I supposed to keep that you know under wraps and act like I'm the one that tweets all this stuff out? I think it's a baller move to say that my wife runs my Twitter account, yeah. actually. That is, to have someone handle your social media is, uh, yeah, yeah that, I'd brag yeah, about I that. Got, I got a pretty bride at home that gave me hell for years for not having any social media, so I said, all right, then... You know, start me up one, but you're dealing with it, not me. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, like I said, that's acceptable. If, if Twitter kicks me out, you know, I'll, I will lose a lot of sleep over it. <laughs> and the funny thing about it, well, it's not funny. It's, uh, I guess it's funny, is it used to be at Lee Smith underscore 86. But now it seems as though that's been taken over by somebody. It's not English, whatever it is. And now you're just at Lee Smith with no underscore 86. Did you know that? Did you know any of this? That's news to me, my friend. That okay, is news to me. So at Lee Smith, I don't know. Maybe you had to get with the former, uh, with the uh, Hall of Fame pitcher to get uh, to have at Lee Smith. But the last thing that was tweeted was a photo of your family. So that does make. Actually, you're retweeting. Your wife retweeted herself. Yeah. Listen, she. She definitely asked me for permission. She's uh, she's wild uh, and emotional like me. So, you know, I tell her, you know, no religion, no politics, no football talk on there. So she always uh, she always asks me. So I guess at the end of the day, it is me saying yes. That sounds great. Post it. Um, but yeah, she's uh, she's the uh, the mind behind most of the things that pop on my Twitter account. So for the most part, it does come from hers, I guess. Uh, she says, hey, how about this? I mean, that sounds great. Put it on there. Can't wait. No football, no politics. Why would anybody want to follow this account? <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm going for. I see. <laughs> I see. Uh, so, uh, Lee, there is something I wanted to ask you about, and I and it had n- I, nothing to do with the fact that, uh, that there's a picture of your family on Twitter, but I was going to ask you about this because I'm not sure how old your, your boys are. Uh, how, how old is your oldest son? He's 11. 11. I see this picture of him, and he looks like he could probably he could start as a defensive back in the NFL right now, probably based on his size. He's a big boy. I have a feeling he's not going to end uh, end up in a, in a DB's body. Uh, he looks like a grown man. Uh, but as the son of an NFL player, your dad, Daryl Smith, who played, and I remember him playing for the Browns, uh, in 89, that's when I was still in high school, and uh, that was uh, you know Bernie Kosar and those guys, and I know he played a handful of games there and with Dallas. Uh, and, of course, you're in the NFL. Your son is playing uh, for Joe Shane's team, from what I understand, the Bills' assistant GM. Uh, what is your thought on the news yesterday? The state of New York is uh, looking at pat- trying to pass legislation to uh, m- uh, make tackle football uh, 13 years and older. Any thoughts you know, on that? Son, yeah, my son's eleven. Um, he looks twenty-six. Yeah, right. Genetics are pretty cool. Um, he, he. This is the first year I let him play. You know, my father was the same way. You know, he kind of uh, 
played football longer than the than the average football player uh, making it to the NFL, and you know just getting getting hit in the head at six, seven, eight years old. Not to say that that's wrong or that parents shouldn't do that. That's a personal preference with your children, obviously. But the way my old man did it and the way I did it was uh, we didn't we didn't put on a football helmet until middle school. So what thirteen? I guess that's seventh or eighth grade. So. You know, that's kind of what I did. That's kind of what my pops did. You know, two guys that, uh, you know, played football for, for a living. So I'm not against it. Uh, I, I know a lot of people would be. Uh, I think middle school, so that, you know, that 11-year-old range, 10, 11, when they uh, get in middle school, that gives them, you know, the three years of middle school to learn the techniques, learn how to play the game so that, you know, as these kids get bigger and stronger in high school, no, I'm not sure that I want my son starting at 13 in eighth grade and then going to middle school and getting hit by a grown man at 18 without really understanding the game. So I think 13 might be a little late, but I'm definitely all for uh, starting them a little later when it comes to the head-to-head collisions and, and all that good stuff that these little kiddos, in my opinion, uh, don't need. I just made eye contact with Matthew Fairburn because this is a story that's been told over beers and also on this show is I was – Johnny Badass in my neighborhood. Uh, I was always the first kid picked. Uh, I was a pretty good player on my 7th grade team and on my 8th grade team. And then we didn't have enough guys to field uh, a ninth grade team. So at nine, at, at whatever that would be, 13? F- at 14, at probably 5'10", 140 pounds, I end up on the varsity team. And it... <laughs> It beat a, it beat a part of me out of my football game. I spent then the rest of my football career uh, not thrilled with contact. Uh, I was supposed to be a defensive back, and I I would not make a tackle. I because I had a guy who was eighteen, probably going on thirty six. He was a he was a probably a five nine hundred and seventy pound defensive back, and in drills uh, he used to beat the hell out of me. And he was such a savage that by his senior year, he was at defensive tackle at whatever that was, 5'9", 170 pounds. They put him at defensive tackle. He was all league. and uh, But this is the guy I had to line up against as a kid going up against a guy who had hair in places that uh, I, I couldn't find it. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, that's my way of saying I understand what you don't want your son to have go through because I think if I would have had a ninth grade team or modified or something like that, I would have got, gotten into my my sophomore, junior, senior years when I was then 6'2", 170 pounds or 60 pounds or whatever I was and could run a little bit. I would not have been uh, urinating all over myself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you're wild. Listen, at the end of the day, once you once you become a small fish in a big pond, you know it happens twice, right? It happens when you go to high school. Ninth graders to to 12th graders is a big jump. You know, like you said, there's there's plenty of ninth graders in the world that haven't started getting pimples and uh, and hair yet. And the same thing in college. I mean, I look. I, I just look had like the pimples. I, I was. Uh, I had the double whammy. I had pimples and no hair. Oh God, well, it was that's, terrible. Yeah, that's even better. So you had, you had more going on than just getting hit by somebody bigger than you. But, <laughs> but you know, once again, your, your body's changing. You're a young man. You know, nobody, nobody, not that many people are playing in the NFL. We all know the stats. I think kids should have a great time playing sports when they're young. Should they, should they learn how to be competitive and work as a team? Hell yeah, they should. That, that's part of life. That's why sports are so great. 
But at the same time, you know, this whole deal, you know, especially when these kids are younger, is to enjoy enjoy each other and have fun playing ball because they're not in the real world yet. The real world's a bitch. You know, bills bills aren't aren't great. You know, uh, having to go get a job and, and and work forty hours a week. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Fair. Paying bills aren't great. Fair, fair enough. Because if you we could we have a we have a devious producer here who could take that clip and make it seem like you're trashing your team. Oh Lord, paying bills. There we go. Yeah, please don't do that. I'll, I'll come on set. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I and I have all kinds of hair and no pimples. So That's right. All right, I I'm gonna no. let it happen. I don't care. I'll, I'll sit and watch it. I'm not no. gonna get in your way. I'll join. No, you. listen. Yeah, absolutely. Now listen, man, you're supposed to have fun playing ball when you're a kid before you you know get out into the real world and and have to get a job and support a family. So I, I, I agree with the fact of, of trying to trying to keep it as safe as possible and keep these kids from, from losing their fun and losing their confidence by just getting their butt kicked by somebody that's, you know, in a much, much different state than them physically. So, you know, once again, the same thing that happens when you get to college. I, I look exactly right now like I looked my senior year of college. You get a 19-year-old kid coming in who's never lifted weights, never had a protein shake, it's a little different with a 270-pound grown man beating up a 19-year-old kid when he gets to college to play sports. So it's, it's all about confidence. It's all about loving the game and having fun. It's hard to it's hard to go out and play a sport that takes so much commitment and time and energy if you're not having fun doing it. So my thing is it's always going to be aggressive. That's why people love to watch it. Uh, people love to watch the, the, the kind of the savage nature, as you said earlier, of us out there beating the hell out of each other. But at the same time, when these kids are little, it's not supposed to be about that in my mind. It's supposed to be about them having fun and enjoying sports. We're in conversation with Bill's tight end, Lee Smith, on the NCCC Thunderwolves hotline. And real quick, I'm sure Matt and Jonah have a question or two for you before we let you go, but it says in the media guide, 6'6", 265. Is that, is that accurate for you right now? Oh, no, absolutely not. I, I've, I married a Southern woman. You know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time. I have by no means have lost any weight since my rookie year or so. That's your, I'm, those I'm are about, your rookie year stats, and they just keep regurgitating them. Yeah, they just they just keep it on there. So now I'm about two seventy five. Now I play two seventy five at this point in my career. How many more touchdowns do you think you'd have if you were uh, still two sixty five? Hell, I've scored a lot more touchdowns at two seventy five than I did two sixty five. <laughs> so, <laughs> and 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 by a lot, I, that's not very many, three. as we all know. So yeah, four, so, uh, three or four. Yeah. So. Um, so no, I uh, I think they 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 forget about me a little more being a little fatter than they did maybe when I actually looked kind of skinny like I could run even though I couldn't back then either. Lee, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but bringing up your dad makes me wonder. Uh, you know, you talking about you know what you want for your son and and sort of how you view sports. What was it like growing up with a your dad being in the NFL and and how did he? You know, I, I know you said he put put you in football at 11, but uh, just what was that like? You know, um, I was six years old when my dad retired. You know, the only thing I can really remember was Reggie White's deep voice when my dad was in Philadelphia. Uh, literally, that's the only thing I remember about him actually playing football. Um, you know, my son's 11. He's in middle school. It's pretty cool being a you know a middle school kid with an old man playing in the NFL. So I definitely remember how, how awesome it was. Um, the fact that my dad did play, you know, from the small town we're from back in Tennessee, it wasn't like there was ex NFL football players walking around, uh, you know, very often. So my dad was was one of the few guys that was able to do it, and 
everybody in town knew it and you know it was cool it was fun it was something that i definitely remember being uh being enjoyable for me as a kid you know knowing that my dad was able to do what he did and, and play professional sports and you know i just hope my kids are proud of me too but uh you know my son was running to marshawn lynch's locker in oakland getting education he probably didn't need oh boy so it's it's, it's been a little different for him being so old and and kind of starting to develop into a young man himself with, with me still playing so it's cool well, let me ask you this then, Lee. Uh, you being six years uh, six years old when your when your father Daryl Smith retired, and your kids being as old as they are now, you see them experiencing things. What is it that you regret not having experienced with your father? Meaning, whether it be remembering it or having not been born five or six years earlier, so that way you could have like seen what he seen what he saw. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know. I, I I don't think there's there's much that I regret, to be honest with you. you know, I, I knew he played in the NFL. Uh, you know, he didn't start pumping out kids quite as early as me and my pretty wife did. But there's there's I mean, there's obviously all little experiences. You know, being in the locker room, being around the guys, uh, just just being around being around the dudes in a football atmosphere as opposed to kind of in a non-football atmosphere, but. I'll still, you know, my dad played college football at the University of Tennessee, and that was right in our backyard growing up. So I was over there with all his ex-teammates that he played in college with. A lot of them went on to play pro football. So I was around those guys my whole life. I got to kind of see how they were wired and and uh, have a lot of good memories with them. It just wasn't necessarily while he was playing. So I guess that would probably be it. Just the, the memories that my kids get on Sundays of actually watching their dad play pro football. I don't actually remember that, but uh, I definitely knew that he did it. And, uh his old cassette tapes would find their way to the VCR every once in a while, so I got to see it as as I got older. I suppose the flip side of that is that he got to watch basically your entire football career. He didn't have to to miss anything because he was playing. I mean, what what was he like in in that standpoint of um, coaching you up, or or was he a little bit more hands off? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, he unfortunately he passed away before I ever got drafted, and you know I was in college, but. Definitely growing up, I think it was surely an advantage. Uh, number one, like I said earlier, genetics were pretty cool, so I was always, you know, a big and strong human. And then um, to kind of have somebody like him that understood the technical side and understood football uh, a little more so than maybe having a dad that didn't play at the, the level that he did and that I've been fortunate enough to play at. So all the little tricks of the trade, you know, not only being bigger and stronger than the majority of my competition growing up, uh, also understood in the game and, and that was savvy and had a little tricks of the trade that he had taught me along the years. And, you know, that transitioned to college and, and even sometimes in the NFL, I'll think back to some of the little things he would tell me growing up and little things he did to, to win. So, um, it was cool. It was fun. It was definitely, uh, he definitely wasn't, he never coached me. He always coached the old line. He didn't want to deal with me. Me and him, uh, our personalities were a little too alike at times. So, He'd end up, you know, putting his hands on me or, or cussing me because I was a little emotional, had a little bit of an attitude going up. So so he never coached me. He just uh, coached the O-line while I played receiver or tight end. And then on the way home is when I got to cussing and, and got told I was soft, needed a man up and all that fun stuff. Good times. You got to miss that, huh? Oh, man, it was, it was great. I miss it big time getting the – a fist to the chest in the front seat of the car it was awesome. 
Hey, Lee, uh, I'm going to just, oh, this is going to be open-ended. Uh, you rolled your eyes when I asked you if you're going to be on the radio show today, and uh, you said you weren't in the mood to talk football. So let me just throw an open-ended question out there and just say, what should we know about the Buffalo Bills? And we'll wrap it up there. Yeah, man. Listen, this football team is is about the right things, and we didn't get to 5-2 and two on accident. Um, we had a 5-2 and because we have – the right group of men with the right leadership. And, um, you know, I think we're extremely aware at the things that we need to work on and get better at. Uh, we're, we by no means think we've arrived because we've, we've won more games than we've lost. But at the same time, we have won more games than we've lost. And that's a great place to be. Hell, it's hard to win football games in the National Football League. I've been on the other side of this deal. And uh, it's a lot worse when your backs are against the wall. So we need, to, we need to keep practicing and working like our backs are against the wall. But at the same time, just look around, understand that the good men in the room and the process that we go about every day that, you know, Sean talks about and Dable and, and just everybody in the building that, that is uh, coming to work, working their ass off every day and trying to get better. We, we don't have any turds. We don't have any cancers. We don't have any egos. There's just no issues in the locker room. And when you do have little issues, when you do have a little minor setback like we did have against Philadelphia, we got a butt kick, man. They came into our house and kicked our butt which isn't something that feels good by any stretch of the imagination. And sure as hell isn't something that we take lightly. So when you have the men we have and you have a game like that, then you know everybody looks each other in the face. No one needs to call anybody out. No one needs to panic. We just all look at each other like, all right, man, someone kicked in our front door, beat up our wife, and and uh, and stole shit out of our refrigerator. So oh, let's respond. Easy, easy, easy. We're on the air. We're on the air. Oh, sorry. I can't say bad words. You've been cussing all day for crying out loud. I just... <laughs> I just, well, that's true. We get we get to well. I maybe I should. I'm sorry. You're right. All that, Pe- people all talk that, to me, and then they just like, hey, we well, could you could say whatever you want to Tim, because at the athletic we can quote you on that. But oh yeah, okay. Uh, they stole um, lunchables out of my my kids' lunchables out of my refrigerator, which is but synonymous the bottom, for the words you used. <laughs> yeah. The, the bottom line is, man, uh, we it's it's a great team when we win, and it's a great team when we lose, and. I think that you build teams for adversity. That's my personal opinion. You don't build a team for the good time because then when the bad times come, you can't handle it. And this team is built for adversity. And, you know, we're just we're just ready to get back to work, go 1-0 against Washington and, you know, get to the halfway point in the season at 6-2, uh, and 3-1 and one in both of the first two quarters of the year and, and uh, start rolling in November and December. There you I, go. Whatever, football you're getting from me. The, oh, geez. Damn it. You know, he, don't say that. I can say that. That you can say. You just can't you can't uh you can't say uh doo doo. You can't say what you can't say. Yeah, you can't say I don't even know. Does that get out on the air, Bobby, or does do we beep that or what happens on Yeah, yeah, yeah. I take care of it. All right. I take Bye. care of that all all through the the switchboard. I see. All right, see. Hey, thanks, guys. Yeah, you got you gotta be on top of that thing when I'm on the air, sorry. All right. <laughs> all right. From from now on, Bill's slogan for the rest of the season, it's not leading the charge or one heartbeat beat louder or whatever the hell that used to be. It's going to be the 2019 Buffalo Bills. No turds. There you go. How about that? You love it. Lee, thanks for joining us on the NCCC Thunderwolves hotline. You got it, man. All right. See you tomorrow. That was Lee Smith on the NCCC Thunderwolves hotline. Come be a part of a winning team at Niagara County Community College. I... I'm nope. already apologetic to Mark Summer. He's been sitting here. What? I was going to say, no turds at N-Trip either. No turds at N-Triple-C. Mark Summer's going to be on.
and he's going to, oh, look, he's taking off his headset. He's leaving out of protest because we went long with Lee Smith. We actually went long with Gene Kirshner, and he helps us pay our bills. So we're going to go. We This is a two two Buffalo news people on the same show. When we three, come back. Three. Oh, Jonah Bronstein. When we come back, and one former and one almost. And Bobby. Bob. Bobby's the only one who's yeah. never been courted by the Buffalo News. Or read the Buffalo News. Or read it, right. When we come back on the Tim Graham Show, we're going to have Mark Summer from the Buffalo News. We're going to talk baseball, namely Rocky Colavito, uh, here on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by CTBK here on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. The interviewed. The Dug or Not. This is historic, Tim. Hey, let's not fake a newcomer. It's cucumber. Our friend Tim Graham. Hey, Tim. And you, Tim. The Tim Graham Show. Tim Graham, who's been ahead of everyone else. Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. <laughs> Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo Travis Besaw and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. He's been waiting here patiently. Mark Summer of the Buffalo News is here to talk some baseball. We don't talk baseball nearly enough on this show. I love it. We get so into the Bills conversation, what's going on with the college scene. By the way, Joan, a quick college note, right? You wanted to add? Damon. Damon, I, well, I got several I could add here. Damon basketball opens their regular season. They played some exhibitions at the Small College Basketball National Hall of Fame Classic against defending undefeated national champion Northwest Missouri State in Division Two. They won 38 straight games. When do, When's this game? That's Friday night. Oh, okay. And that's – give me this, the site again. Where is it? It's in St. Joseph, Missouri. St. Joseph, Missouri. So you have you time – there, Matt? You have time to get there. I've not actually. Yeah, I, I drove through St. Joseph, Missouri, once. All sorts of exhibitions. If people are into that, UB women have an exhibition game Friday night. Niagara men against Robert Wesley and Canisius Saturday at noon. So you're itching for some college basketball. The real games start next weekend for Division One, but there's some exhibitions this weekend. All right, now for the rest of the show, with the exception of giving Joel Staniszewski's pick at the end of the entire show. Joel Staniszewski's been bumped because we want to talk baseball for the rest of this show. How Mark does Joel Summer, feel about that? He says he's fine with it, and he gave me the pick, and I'll mention it at the end of the show. Mark Summer, <laughs> author of Rocky Colavito, Cleveland's Iconic Slugger, which was released uh, in the in the spring or summer? June. In June. Yeah. I always have to look up. What is June? June uh, depends on what part of June, right? Isn't the first part of June spring? Yeah. When is spring? 21st of June. All right. See, my wife knows all these things. And I have to ask, what is the spring? What is the summer? All right, so June. We'll, we'll call it early. Early summer. It was, it's yeah. baseball season. It's summer. And it's Mark Summer of the Buffalo News. Uh, dare I say, <clears throat> the most accomplished baseball writer at the Buffalo News? Mark Summer wrote Rocky Colavito, Cleveland's iconic slugger. Uh, but real quick, let's talk baseball. Let's talk World Series. Well, that is baseball. Let's talk World mm. Series because that was a wild game last night. We have Game 7 tonight from Houston, all the marbles. The Washington – the Washington – when Rocky Colavito played, the, the Washington Nationals didn't exist? 
Were they the Rangers? Wait, what were they? No, they no, did. It, it's, it was pre-Rangers. It was right. The so it Minis- would have to have been. There were the Washington Nationals. There were, there were the Senators. Washington Senators. Right. Well, of course, the Washington. Yeah. So of course, Washington had a team. Houston had the Colt Forty Fives. Right. Anyway, I'm trying to tie this all together, and I'm failing miserably. And, and the World Series had two American League teams, uh, an American League and National League, not two National League teams. That's you know, right. The, the Astros are a National League team. They are. What are they doing in the why World they, Series? Why can't they just flip Milwaukee back to the AL, put Houston back in the NL? Anywho, your thoughts and on put Washington game? back in Montreal. Could do that, too. Uh, I think I think uh, Tampa Bay might end up in in Montreal. Yeah. That seems to fit. Tampa Bay had a great season, a very good team, and they can't draw in that stadium. It's a it's well, it's a depressing ballpark in that dome. Uh but yeah, let's let's get Montreal uh, another baseball team. But as for the Washington uh, the Washington Nationals going into game 7, I think they are America's team, especially with what happened with the controversy and the Astros Firing Brandon Taubman, their assistant general manager, for mocking women over Roberto Asuna. Uh, and then, I mean, I'm not a big... First off, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I don't think the umpires are out to screw the Washington Nationals. But a disproportionate amount of the close calls or controversial calls are going against the Nationals. And they're still surviving, standing, heading into this game... Uh, in a series in which the road team has won every game. It's never happened in the NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and best of seven series. It's never happened for the first six games, and it might end up the whole series. It's crazy. I mean, like you say, never before, and it may it may continue for this for tonight. I think I think the Nationals are going to win this. What's your thought on it? I mean, what... I think Scherzer is really going to be up for this game. I mean, there is, he's just such a clutch pitcher. And it, he the moment just seems to be made for him tonight. You know, we'll see. But I, I, my money's on him, which, which isn't a lot of money. But The moment never seems to be there for Justin Verlander. It was amazing to me all the things that this man has accomplished. And he has been on a World Series winning team. He has never won a World Series game. Well, you know, they said the same about, you know, how Kershaw was like better than Sandy Koufax, maybe the greatest left-handed pitcher ever. He can't win in the World Series. He's just a, he's a 500 pitcher in the postseason. Verlander has pitched well, better than his record indicates, but, you know, he still can't get that win in the World Series. And, you know, I think you got to, if you're a really great pitcher, you got to win in the World Series. Your thoughts Sometime. on the controversial play last night, Mark? You know, it seems to be by the book, correct call. It does. However, I think it happens all the time. Um, I think the throw is probably kind of lousy in uh, to first base, and I think Trey Turner probably was out of the baseline. But I think again, it, it's it, it it's it commonly occurs. I don't really know the rule inside and out to say positively he was safe or not safe. Probably by the letter of the law, he was out. Again, it happens all the time. And Joe Torrey, the way he explained it afterwards, it's not necessarily, and there was even fuzziness in the explanation, Mm. not necessarily that he was out of the base path, but also mentioned as a key component of it that he knocked off the first baseman's glove. So that makes it not runner's interference in some way. But what that call does is, first off, the base is in fair territory. You're supposed to run in foul territory. So how do you make, how do you how do you square that circle? Uh, but then the other part of it is, 
the call bails out bad defensive play. If the throw is where it's supposed to be, then right. the glove Trey Turner been, doesn't rub the, the glove. Shouldn't the glove. have probably been there anyway. So that's right. Yeah, right. Well, at the baseball gods, if you believe in such a thing, at least came two two batters later, Rendon hits the home run, and the Nationals win the game going away. Uh, your other your other thoughts on uh, on the game tonight before we get to. Uh, Rocky Calavito, Cleveland's iconic ball player. I think they're both really good teams. As we know, since May 24th, they've had identical records. Um, anything can happen. I mean, they're both deserving, to be honest. I'm not an, I'm not an Astros fan at all. I, I always favor the underdog in, in matches like this. The Nationals haven't, you know, have never won. Washington, D.C. hasn't had a victory, what, since 1933. Um, like the long-suffering Cleveland Indians, who we're going to talk about in a minute, it, it would be great to see. I would like to see the Nationals win. I think that, I think they're in good shape with with Scherzer, but you know, again, e- either team could take it tonight. Matt, any anything about World Series or Jonah? I like Scherzer. I, I think if you've got that horse going in that game, uh, it's a good bet. But man, this is what this is what baseball needs, right? A series like this, Game 7, some high-profile stars, some pretty big markets. And imagine and if it would have ended last night. We're talking that, about this ticky-tack call. Was it by the – but it, what a bad taste it would have left in everyone's mouths had that been the turning point in the game, uh, the play at first base with Trey Turner. That would have been the opposite of you know, the story that, that baseball needs, especially considering what has kind of clouded this series. Um, and I feel like – as somebody who was once really into baseball and now is only one foot in, um, this series has drawn me in a little bit, and hopefully uh, Game 7 sort of lives up to the rest of it. The home field advantage will be crucial tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Right, as it's been all series. You know, it'll be interesting if it's close and the Astros go to Garrett Cole and bring him in, right? That that'll be that'll be pretty intense. Strasburg, happens. I couldn't believe. I go. It's a question that has to be asked. But Steven Strasburg, after the brilliant performance last night, in which he probably could have gone the full game, especially with the cushion at the end. Uh, one of the first questions asked to him after the game was, "Do you have anything? Do you think you could pitch tomorrow night?" And it, the look on his face was like, "I mean, yeah, we can try to squeeze blood out of a stone." Uh, he was like, "I guess." I guess all hands on deck for Game 7. So can we ask for a minute, why couldn't he have gone those, those other two outs in the ninth inning? He was, he was, it's a great he question, was coasting. Mark. And why Is would you really... want to throw your relievers out there? Give your relievers an extra day off, or they an were extra up, day's rest. They were up five runs. He was coasting, really, at that point still. Still throwing, you know, 95 to 100. Why not? I mean, this kind of conservative orthodoxy these days of uh, baseball managers you know, to take pitchers out uh, in such situations drives me crazy. And a great side story, too, the whole tipping the pitches thing, which I'm watching the game while working a little bit, and I'm not – was the analysis, did they really talk about that during the broadcast, about how Strasburg was tipping his pitches for the first couple innings and he and he got touched up? He was getting hit hard. And then all of a sudden he changed his delivery and he started fluttering his glove a little bit, and then all of a sudden he became untouchable. Now Pedro Martinez was saying – he just started pitching better, but there was a belief that, you know, that he was he was tipping his pitches, and and again, it, those evil Astros—they're cheating. They're going to figure out ways, but I guess that's what they do. All right, 
Mark Summer of the Buffalo News is here to talk about his book, Rocky Colavito, Cleveland's Iconic Slugger. And this is a book that touches home with me as a native Clevelander. Uh, the Curse of Colavito was something that I grew up with, and I guess it still hovers. Uh, the Cavaliers uh, able to at least give Cleveland a championship, uh, and but the Indians uh, and the Browns were living with that cloud for a long time. Um, Mark, as a, as a city-side writer for the Buffalo News, uh, you decide you want to embark on this project. Where did it come from that you wanted to, that you felt compelled to write a book about Rocky Colavito? Like a lot of things, you know, you go online, you, you Google whatever the subject is, and you just start checking something out for whatever reason. So I did that with Rocky Colavito. I'm actually old enough to remember him at the end of his career. And, you know, I liked a lot of players, but he was one of the players I liked the most. I think because he had a cool name, Rocky Calavito. He held his bat up high. He was a home run hitter. You know, he looked cool. And uh, for whatever, you know, all the reasons that when you're a kid, you like somebody. And, and I didn't even live in Ohio. You know, I, I grew up in uh, um, New York and Southern California. So um, I read a biography, a biography of Rocky when I was 13. So fast forward to... January of 2017, and I'm, I'm Googling his name. And I had some questions about him, like, you know, whatever happened to Rocky Calavito? And I thought I had heard something about a falling out between him and the team. I didn't really know. Why wasn't he in the Hall of Fame? So I just, for the heck of it, was, you know, looking at stuff. And, and then at one point I thought, oh, gee, I wonder how many books have been written about him over the years. And the only book was the one I read when I was 13. And, and I thought, wow. I mean, I know that, you know, I go to Cleveland every once in a while. I know he's really, as you know, Tim, he's still a great sports legend in Cleveland. I couldn't believe nobody had written a book about him. So I started to think about that. And the whole issue of the curse that you just mentioned, which has become synonymous over the years with, you know, anything from the fire in the Cuyahoga River <laughs> to the loss of industry and the, the mayor decline catching his hair on fire with yeah, the blowtorch. Like everything has sort of been folded into the curse of Calavito. So the idea of writing about that and that trade, that famous trade, and his story and that kind of golden era of baseball from the 50s and 60s, you know, really appealed to me. So decided to, to try to do it. So you may be wondering if you're of a certain age or you're just not, uh, you, you don't know about uh, what happens in Cleveland. Uh, the Calavito curse began April 17th, 1960, when Rocky Calavito, coming off a season in which he led the American League in home runs, is traded to the Detroit Tigers... For Harvey Keene, who had led the American League in batting, and it was a Frank Lane, who was a, a guy who never met a, a player he couldn't trade, uh, including Roger Maris from the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, he tried. This is a guy who tried to trade Stan Musial from the Cardinals, uh, but was stopped by the owner. So anyway, Frank Lane trades. It's a, it seems like a neat trade. Calavito, forty-two home runs, two fifty-seven batting average for Keene who had hit 353 with 42 doubles, but only nine home runs. So a totally different player. Uh, the problem being, Calavito's only 26. Keen is 29, still has some years left. But back then, 29 was getting in the twilight, really. You got to 30 when you were in your 60s as a sports, as whether you're a football player or a baseball player, you're getting towards the end. Calavito had a lot of years left. Goes on to hit 374 home runs, uh, over 1,100 RBIs, nine-time All-Star. So anyway, that's where it starts. And then Cleveland, the Indians, were just horse bleep ever since. 
You know, that trade was really crazy for a bunch of reasons. Rocky in 58 and 59 hit more home runs, knocked in more runs than Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle, you know, universally seen as the two best players at that time. Um, attendance for the team after the 58 season surged by 834,000 because the team had fallen on, you know, bad fortune. They, they, had, they had done poorly at the, at the, uh, in the standings, poor, poorly at the box office. And there was even talk of moving the team at that time. Um, so after the 59 season, Things are looking great. You know, the Indians are in pennant contention. Attendance is, is, is back, back again. And then Rocky gets traded. And it was just so devastating, as you know, Tim, to, to Clevelanders who still talk about it. And it was particularly devastating to Italian-Americans because he was such an icon to, to Italians. And it's easy to see why because, you know, um, uh, Italians, like, like just about every ethnic group that's come into the United States were, were faced with a lot of discrimination and mistreatment. And uh, in World War II, you know, one of our enemies was Italy, even though Italians made up the largest fighting force among all ethnic groups for the United States. So Rocky just was such a class act. He embodied the, the kind of um, characteristics that people aspired to be. And, uh, you know, he had, he had movie star looks and, and just kind of this earnest boyishness, hustled out to right field, was, um, would stay after every game when possible and sign autographs. So and he was, maybe he was the greatest solo. outfield arm of all time. Maybe. You know, in, in uh, his last year in the minor leagues with uh, San Diego, uh, Pacific Coast League, 1956, he throws the ball in a throwing exhibition, which were not uncommon in those days. He throws the ball 435 feet and 10 inches. And he said it was his second best throw of that, of that day, but the, first, the, the better throw couldn't be measured for, for a particular reason. But yeah, he had an astounding arm. And, you know, not always the most accurate, but out in right field, people did not want to run on him. Yeah, it's a fantastic book, and I've read it. I, I bought it quickly and uh, devoured it. And not only is it a great look at Rocky Colavito, because as you mentioned, you can't tell the story of Rocky Colavito without capturing the time. And so I think that the book does a wonderful job of capturing 1950s, 60s baseball. So it's a historical, it's a look at the game and the time, as you mentioned, with Italian Americans uh, in, in the 1960s. Uh, but it is, uh, it's, it's just a great overall book. It's comprehensive. There's nothing that if you read this book, you think, well, I wonder about this or that. And the fact that you get into how some, some bridges were burned and then fences mended really, uh, in a, in a really, uh, uh, I don't know, I hesitate to use the words tragic, uh, but it, it was a heartbreaking thing for a sports hero like, uh, like Rocky Calavito to fall. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know what it's remin- what it reminded me of, uh, because I'd done some research on the topic a couple of years earlier for a story I wrote. It was Yogi Berra and the New York Yankees. You know, Yogi Berra was, he got fired from the Yankees as the manager and, right. uh, and he refused to come around. And this was one of the most beloved Yankees of all time and refused to step foot in Yankee Stadium. But, uh, but I want to mention this because uh, we are uh, getting towards the end of the show. Uh, you can go to RockyColavitoBiography.com. This book was published by McFarland and Company, but it, the book has its own website, RockyColavitoBiography.com. And uh, Tim Graham Show listeners can put in the promo code THE ROCK. Put it in in all caps, THE ROCK, for $5 off uh, the book. 
Um, and uh, it's it's fantastic. I, I recommend it not only as a Clevelander, but as a baseball fan. So don't think, oh, well, Tim Graham, he's from Cleveland, of course. No, this is a great baseball book. Um, Mark, uh, oh, let's talk about this real quick. He's 86 years old now, mm-hmm. and but you helped produce an event in which you brought him back to Cleveland, and it may be because... He's not. He doesn't live in Cleveland. This may be the last time Rocky Calavito is there. You put on an event. You promoted it uh, for the for the book. But this was your event. Yeah. Can, I had, can you tell us about it? I, yeah, I got this crazy idea when I was working on the book. When I realized that the All Star Game, which is in a different city every year, was going to be in Cleveland in 2019, and I knew my book would be coming out somewhere around then. I convinced the publisher to get the book out just before the All Star Game. I rented a theater about the size of Shays called the State Theater in downtown Cleveland, and I brought Rocky back. The event was called The Return of Rocky Calavito. I got Louis Tiant, Sam McDowell, and Vern Fuller, three of his teammates, to participate. It was a three-hour program. There was a book signing with Rocky beforehand, um, and there were like over 800 people that night. And it was really a magical night. People were just enthralled to see Rocky again. Well, let me plug the and, website and one more it. time because sure. you can see a video of the entire event at RockyColavitoBiography.com. Just go down to the bottom of the page, and there is a YouTube, uh, and it is beautiful. It's very well produced. It's just a single camera on the stage, which, right. but there's uh, Mark Summer does a reading from the book. Uh, Bob DiBiasio, the former uh, PR man for the Indians, does a... He's still there. Still oh, is he it. still there? Oh, yeah. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. He was old when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, but he, he interviews Rocky Calavito uh, right. in a way that... Because he knew him so well. Right. Uh, and then um, and then there's a roundtable with Vern Fuller, Louis Tiant, and Sam McDowell. And, uh, and it's a great event that you did there just by putting that together, let alone writing the book. Yeah. It, it was financially risky, but I finished in the black, so I'm relieved. All right. Well, and it, it was it was really great fun. Yeah. Well, let's give one more plug. RockyColavitoBiography.com, so you can pick up a copy of Rocky Calavito, Cleveland's Iconic Slugger, written by Mark Summer of the Buffalo News. Type in, in all caps, THE ROCK for $5 off in the, uh, as a promo code. Uh, Mark, so great to have you here. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for coming real in. Real pleasure. The pleasure's all ours. Uh, and we need to, under the wire, get in Joel Staniszewski's pick for the Bills against Washington. Joel Staniszewski says uh, the line is down to 9.5. This is a big show that uh, it's a big show-me game for Buffalo. He sees them putting up 30 and winning easy. Oh, also, baseball tonight. Four of the six World Series games have gone over. One was a push, and the only one to go under was in Washington with no DH. Uh, so, uh, and no roof. Take the over, seven and a half. With no DH. The pitchers are hitting? Well, they were in... Oh, he's talking about four of the six... What's he, he's saying that the only one that went under was in Washington, and there was no yeah. DH, because that's a National League game. There was, the pitchers were hitting. So in Houston tonight, there's a roof, if needed. Four of the six World Series games have gone over. One was a pish, push. And the other that and the under. other to go under was in, oh my best. I, I'm trying to read a text online. Take the over seven and a half. Joe Staniszewski giving you two tips. And take the Bills. Take the Bills. Give the nine and a half. Take the give, they're going to score at least eight and runs. Take tonight. the over if the Bills are scoring thirty. Take the over. Take the over on the Tim Graham show today because it's six oh one. 
The Tim Graham Show brought to you by Shampoo Travis Bishaw and Kirshner CPAs and Business Consultants. Uh, thanks to Matthew Fairburn. Thanks to Jonah Bronstein, Bobby Rosati for producing. Mark Summer of the Buffalo News. Lee Smith of the Buffalo Bills. Gene Kirshner of CTBK and the Buffalo News. Check you next week. Tell your brothers or your sisters.